Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwolanski. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today, we are in conversation with Mark Harris. Hi, Mark. Hi, Barry. Thanks for joining us. And my co-host, Karen Gammy. Hi, Karen. Hey, Basils. Hi, Mark. Hi, Karen. So we are speaking to Mark Harris, and Mark is one of the most highly respected leaders and role models in the local digital sector. Many articles and bios that I've read about him over the past few days refer to him as a veteran. And this is what he is in the most positive sense of the word. Like many of those in his generation, both in South Africa and around the world, Mark entered the IT sector by going to work for IBM, uh, which he joined as an engineer in 1981. But unlike many of his peers, he didn't hop from job to job. Mark stayed with IBM for over 30 years. He rose quite quickly through the ranks of what was and still is one of the world's most influential IT companies. And he became head of IBM South Africa and then vice president of business development for the Middle East and Africa region within IBM. In the late 1990s and 2000s, Mark served as a key advisor to the South African government through the time it was trying to develop its post-apartheid economic strategies. Uh, he served, for example, on President Thabo Mbeki's Presidential International Advisory Council on Information Society and Development, and that consisted of local and international chief executives of major IT companies. Mark also used his position at IBM to mentor and grow a new generation of leaders for the local digital economy. One of these was Mteta Nyati, who we have interviewed in this podcast season already. And uh, you will have heard that Mteta went on from IBM where he worked under Mark's leadership to become chief executive at Microsoft SA, at MTN South Africa, and then at Altron. And it's interesting to note that Mark now works with Mteta at Altron. There are many other leaders in our community who Mark nurtured and grew. Mark left IBM in 2013 to become chief executive of Kahisa Media where he drove a digital transformation journey. He is now the chief executive at Altron Nexus, which is a company that designs, builds and runs advanced ICT networks, which lie at the heart of transforming our cities to smart cities. And we'll hear more about that later. My connection with Mark goes back nearly 20 years when he was the head of IBM. He supported and encouraged me while I was busy setting up the Joburg Center for Software Engineering at WITS. He has remained a trusted advisor and a, good, and a good friend throughout my life's journey since then. Mark also chairs the JCSC's advisory board, plus he's a member of the Tsimolohong board. He is also a great supporter of WITS University, where he has served on several strategic advisory committees. Through the past months, the past few months, Mark and I have joined forces to create a new thought leadership portal. 
we um, think of it as a go-to place for those wanting to find authoritative content about our local digital economy. We call this portal, or we call this collective that we formed, the Grand Geeks, and we'll, you'll, you'll hear more about this in coming weeks and months. So, after that very long introduction, Mark, um, this podcast is really about life as a relay race. And I'm interested to know how you picked up the baton. If you can tell us a bit about the things that led you to decide to go into the world of computing. Thanks, Barry. Uh, Barry, I wish I had decided whether or not to go into the world of computing. It sort of happened to me. I was in a very interesting space, Barry. I worked for an insurance company. Um, and what had happened was that there was an opportunity for me to go work in IT. And uh, I decided, let me, let me try. The CIO in that organization asked me to come and help because they were just about to install a new system, or their first system, actually, because they were being run by somebody else. And I went and did it. And uh, <laughs> without any training, I think I got to really like IT and computing. Um, I started getting to the point where I was installed. I basically installed their systems from reading manuals. And based on that, I started to compete with IBM engineers in fixing problems and where things were going wrong. And IBM then decided the way to shut me up was to try and hire me <laughs> as quickly as possible. So, um, so it was <laughs> it was quite a surprise that uh, you know for someone who had no formal training in IT, that I, I, I liked it as much as I did. And I, I'm just one of those uh, very intrigued people. And there was so much to learn. I mean, it was basically a new world at that point in time. Um, and, it, and I never looked back. You know, I, I stayed with, um, I joined IBM, uh, as you say, in, as an engineer. I, I must say, Barry, you know, like, if you know, and I look at some of my career during that stage, it was hard, right? Um, you know, I don't want to refer back to some of the, the dark in the past, but um, the reality, there were a few, of a few of us that were engineers in what was then uh, not a very comfortable place uh, to work with. I think, you know, we had to go into customer env environments where diversity was not the mainstream of how they operated. And we had to act as engineers and fix computers. And I was fortunate. I had a lot of really good uh, friends of mine. And um, we managed to work through that and built a career in IT. And, you know, some of them will always remain in my memory, some of the hardships we faced because of diversity challenges at the time. But, you know, we, I was determined to succeed. And I felt as long as I was able to beat anybody that I could, technically and deliver to what I needed, I would succeed. And unfortunately, I never got out of it, Barry. So from then onwards, I got into this engineering world. Look, I mean, I had a lot of interesting things through that technical career. Um, and, you know, sometimes when I talk to the youngsters nowadays about some of the things that I did or we did in that time, it sounds almost a little bit like, fact, like, like fiction, right, <laughs> rather than yeah. fact. So there's a lot of great stories, but we'll get down to some of them. Yeah, and in fact, you know, that kind of question of, and it's um, something Amteto also raised in his first job, he was the only black engineer in a very white, old apartheid company. And I guess you coming in, all right, it was a multinational, but you came into IBM and, uh, you know, there weren't, as, there weren't people of color in, in those kind of environments and it was in the very depth of apartheid that you broke into a world that that really was was uh, a white world so i'm sure you came across a lot of uh, backlash in terms of working in that time but yeah. we're very pleased that you went into computing <laughs> and stayed in computing yeah, yeah you, I really like you, that story about how you like fell into engineering as opposed to like actively choosing this life view. I think that's 
that's beautiful. Like that's a really nice way to fall into it. Um, and you started talking about just kind of the environment that you were in. And I know at the beginning, Barry mentioned that, um, you know, a lot of your work has been about like nurturing and growing future leaders. And so when you were at IBM, which was what, the early 80s, um, who were the people there that nurtured and mentored you? And like, what was that like, given this whole other political environment that was going on? Yeah, so so Karen, you know, Barry mentioned that, you know, life inside IBM was uh, more open to diversity. But I have to tell you, it was, it was tough, even inside of IBM, because you still had to go on cu to customers and you still mm -hmm. had to do things and you still ended up in sometimes quite a hostile environment based on on diversity but 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 you know i mean there was a, quite a few of us that, well not a lot of us there was a few of us who worked through that and were able to succeed i have to tell you that you know as um south africa realized that things needed to change um it was still very tough because i looked at i looked around me and there were you asked about who was my mentor or nurtured i didn't have any i have to be very honest with you um i it was a lonely battle it was a lonely battle and many of us as black engineers uh, we stayed where we were as engineers we progressed up that particular profession uh, i mean i got to at that stage what was called a consultant systems engineer so i used to build complex banking systems etc but i stayed there and i didn't move any to any form of managerial even though i was a manager and a, or executive role because it was a safe place for us to operate looking back you know i wish we had some people who would mentor and would nurture or mentors but we never had those types of leaders around us mm. Right, so we were at the forefront of having to deal with this environment, uh, driving a a career uh, in the engineering field, and sometimes with really hostile customers, like really hostile. Um, you know, I remember having to to run back to the office every time um, I needed to 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 do something personal because they didn't allow me to use the bathrooms, while they were real, totally reliant on me to fix up systems which were which were not done. So. Um, but but you know it's it's I know a lot of other lot, lot people talk about it, but I'm not sure that there were people there who were role models or were there to nurture or grow me. I have to tell you, years later, I was the CEO of IBM at the time, and I had a ex IBM exec come to me and said, "You know what, Mark? He says you must have been a late bloomer." He says, because uh, we didn't notice you. So I said, look, the fact that you people didn't recognize talent, it wasn't my problem, that was yours. <laughs> and I shut him up immediately. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so, so that's what the, the, you know, from a who nurtured, I would say, you know, we set ourselves goals. There's a, a late friend of mine, a name Simon Ndoro, where the two of us were sort of the black engineers in the banking field. Um, and um, I remember, having a deep discussion with him one day about what we needed to do uh, in order to just help other people along. And, you know, it was exactly what we could. As engineers, we would sit there, we'd get these interns coming in, and we would try and help them and coach them. And right now, I will tell you, there's a lot of those people that's out there, thanks to people like Simon and myself, who realize we have to give them a helping hand because we never had anyone ahead of us, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's what it's the price one pays to be the first. Yeah, um, exactly. And um, in fact, like me, you've seen the world of computing grow from what it was in the 1980s to what it is today. And I sometimes look at what it is today and I just marvel at how much has changed. And in fact, before the kind of mid 80s or early 80s, computing was done on large and expensive machines. People don't realize what computing looked like. It was mainframes and maybe a few mini computers, but they were big things that were locked in air-conditioned rooms, and very few people had access to computers and used them. And then one of the most important innovations around the, the early 80s was the personal computer, or the PC. And uh, the story goes that although IBM developed one of the most successful first PCs, it never expected it to be that successful and that important. 
um, can you cast your mind back and to think about what you and your colleagues thought about personal computers in the 1980s? Yeah, so, so Barry, you know, we remember we just come from an environment where uh, we were dealing with micro uh, computers, and then we had these big, large mainframes, and the world was starting to change because we were rolling out really complex technologies. Uh, ATMs um, were starting to roll out. So, so quickly you started to see this world, which we used to call distributed computing, right? Uh, because the use of large centralized mainframes or larger computers uh, was starting to limit the type of impact you could have on businesses from a technology enablement point of view. So we started to see that that change come through and then the PC era came. It's quite an interesting story which is not well told. But uh, you ask about IBM's success and they didn't expect it to be that successful. It was by accident, Barry. Um, there's a very good friend who I think you know him as well. His name is Mark Dean, who yes, was indeed. he's considered the inventor of the PC, not because they designed it and it was so successful, because they forgot and they left the patents of what the PC should look like, like the SCSI drive and how you connect that up. And so people copied it, which is why it became so prolific, right? Not because by design they decided to release it. <laughs> so, uh, so, 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 I mean, the PC, the PC world grew. But, you know, we went through many different phases. Um, we went through a period of, you know, everything was mainframe. Then we went into this distributed computing. Then you realized you couldn't control this distributed computing. And then the industry had to rethink about when do you use PCs and when do you use uh, larger computers and mainframe? And how do you govern or manage and make sure from an IT best practice uh, that it was there. And at that stage, to be honest, even from an application development point of view, the PC had lots of great functions, but the thing that held it back was about connectivity, right? So you yeah. just didn't have the speed to drive a proper distributed computing environment. So you had to, you had to start looking at front-end servers and how you started to build up the front-end. In a, in a more secure way, and then the, the, the back end, you had a separate set of systems, and you never crossed the back end to the front end, but you started to see things like branch rollouts with PCs starting to change the way the world looked at technology at that point in time, because you were starting to bring services through the applications you've developed right to the front end of large organizations such as banks and insurance companies so and it it was quick you didn't have to be reliant on the mainframe and you know i remember us trying to build for what they would call store forward type situations of uh, people writing applications at the front end of the branch making sure you synchronized it to the back end of the branch uh, because the connectivity was either not stable enough or you never had the speed but that's how those systems started to merge and then you got to an era where it all blurred right um one of the things that happened is sort of in the the late 80s and the 90s. In fact, IBM invented something called grid computing, right? Um, mm. Which, um, and they, the, the analogy they used was that computing will become like a utility, like electricity. You will not know where it was generated, but you will switch it on and it's available. And it's autonomous across, across the entire industry and society. Um, it's a pity because, you know, if IBM had kept the leadership on that, they probably would have been much further ahead of any other company because that's what's now called cloud, right? Yeah. So, uh, so cloud computing was actually uh, seen by IBM, strategized by IBM way before cloud computing uh, became a norm and the way you build things. And it created a whole new environment of people not necessarily having to be data center uh, heavy in order to deliver things but been able to deliver really robust, high-value, fast, transactional types of systems without necessarily relying on large backends, right? Yeah. So you yeah. mentioned like the, the PC and kind of like grid computing and now what we understand as cloud computing, but what were some of the other like really cool innovations that came from IBM during the 80s and 90s? 
So, so there were lots. You know, it, it's a pity because I think a lot of times um, IBM invented stuff and missed it. There was a thing called e-business. Uh, and e-business is was what was the prelude to what we then call the dot-com. But you know, when you talk about dot-com, you also talk about the bubble bursting, right? So there's a negative connotation coming. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the current world around e-commerce, um, it really is just the evolution of what happened through that phase. Um, and unfortunately, it went crazy with startups and acquisitions, and uh, and there was a, a lot of. Uh, uh, people being misled about what the value of certain things was, was, and a mad rush into this dot-com era until the bubble burst. I think the second thing was that um, if you look at cloud computing today, or if you look at the restrictions that uh, that computing had then, was the whole thing around supercomputers, right? Um, and IBM invented something first called Big Blue, and and then called Watson. And what and and the, why those computers actually uh, got to fame was because that they beat the, 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 the they beat a, a human being at chess, and then later even a more complex thing like Jeopardy, uh, where it was then showed that the processing speed of these computers, starting t uh, together with the fast access to data, basically the machine became more powerful than the brain, and that led to the whole world around AI. Right, so you know, artificial intelligence, um, machine learning started to come up, but it's a combination of things. So you know, if you you, you can't say IBM invented all these things, but if you piece it all together, um, you've gone from connectivity getting from you know 256k into uh, gigabyte speed. You have the environment where you've got supercomputers that uh, you can you can chain them together so that you don't have any limitation around the type of hardware. You got processing speeds coming out. You got easy way and applications to exploit that environment. You got fast access and high volumes of data. Uh, what people forget at that point in time is that the actual cost of storage was so prohibitive and it was so expensive that you didn't think that it could reach where we are today. Today, you know, storage is you know, is very inexpensive, and there's lots and high volumes of it. And you tie that together with the supercomputing and the fast networks, and you have an environment that basically there is no limitation to what you can do through the use of technology anymore. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting to think of that because because as a young software engineer, I can remember the challenges we uh, that we faced was how to to squeeze stuff into memory. We came up with all sorts of tricks to use as little memory as we possibly could, because there was a high premium on memory and um, and and speed, you know, you milked out every bit of performance from computers. And that's all sort of gone away in the way that software developers work because um, uh, space and speed and memory are, are just there, you know, you just use it. Um, Barry, so uh, you, uh, uh, you're right, you know, if I think how many nights, weekends I spent because the, remember a large mainframe then, uh, the the memory was only 256k, right? You get yeah. that in toys yeah. now that cost you 50 rand in shops, right? Yeah. So, you know, and that's large, high volume banking systems were run on 256K. And as you said, I had to, had to write overlays and things to try and keep the memory uh, and reduce the size of applications. And today, you know, nobody cares. You No one really cares yeah. because you can just increase the capacity, the memory capacity of these devices. Yeah. And in fact, it was one of the things that this, um, and I don't know if our younger listeners even know what it was, but there was something called Y2K. So when we went from 1999 to 2000, uh, there was a huge crisis or a supposed crisis in the world because the uh, date field, the year field in most programs only had two digits. So it, it didn't have 1995. It only had 95, and when it flipped over in 2000, it would go to zero, zero. 
So all the calculations of dates were, were potentially going to be wrong. And the reason that they didn't have the four characters for the year was it wasted two bytes of memory. So, yeah, you know, they exactly. couldn't <laughs> waste all that memory. So it's uh, very interesting. Um, I just want to um, kind of move a bit more into the in, um, into the 90s and the things you did. So um, I spoke in season one of the podcast about how in the 1990s and early 2000s, our new democratic post-apartheid government were presented with various strategies to grow the ICT sector. So um, I w was involved, and I think you were very involved, in something called the CITES report that the DTI um, uh, wrote, which was a future strategy for the um, IT industry. There was the presidential, the presidential Advisory Council that you were part of. And I think a lot of strategies and ideas were fed to government, but they missed many of the opportunities to implement what were really good strategies. And um, I find that quite frustrating because I think we could have been in a different place. Uh, um, um, could you talk about what you think about sort of government's strategies and the implementation of those strategies? Yeah, so, so Barry, let's, if we cast ourselves back to that point in time, right? Um, what you, you were already in an environment where government was uh, themselves sitting on a lot of systems which had already aged. So the first thing was about what does government do, right? In order to make sure that they can modernize and build out on those new systems in order to deliver service. Um, and unfortunately in South Africa, the speed at which we did that uh, didn't occur like we should. So, you know, there was a lot of debate about open source versus uses using uh, proprietary software. Um, and there are, South Africa has a litany of projects who decided they were going to replace all this expensive software from these international software providers through building open source platforms and there's a litany of failures. So it just didn't happen, right? Um, the second issue that I think we struggled to deal with at that point in time was around skills, right? So especially when we looked at IT skills at that point in time, it was about this is how what we as a country, what the demographics of we as a country look like. IT was not seen as being very interesting uh, to our black youth at the time. Um, and we had to find a way, one, to entice black youth that IT was critical and was a part of government. The second thing was to build the type of academies, etc., to develop the types of skills that would then uh, help to change, uh, to change the country. And then the third was to find a way that we could compete internationally and 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 the strange thing was we we were able to compete if you look at the technology at that stage in the banks as an example we were streets ahead of a lot of the big banks in the US or or in the UK so you know the, the one thing apartheid had helped us to do was that you know we were self-sufficient we had built some but we now needed to scale that into all these other areas and i think we missed that opportunity to develop those skills early enough in order to be competitive in all types of uh, of industries including government i think the next wave that was even more more important for us was about what we do in order to develop local technology and to develop local software um, there was a lot of great ideas i mean the advisory council had really strong people internationally um, and did we could we create local industries so as an example even just developing a smartphone um, that was South African and hopefully South Africans would buy it. It's happened in India, it's happened in China and those uh, local brands have be become big global brands but we were unable to pull that off. When we look at as an example, uh, we went through a period in the late 90s where the world uh, and the US and some of the larger countries were looking for cheaper skills in countries and I mean, uh, you know, South Africa could have really captured 
a big part of that market. Um, I did something in IBM, and actually the, the learning from that was scary because we had good technology skills. We had the ability to be uh, to speak multiple languages. We have, at that stage, we had a customer service culture. So from a business processing outsource point of view, we should have captured a large part and built South Africa up to really be known for certain capabilities, including the infrastructure that we required. I think some of the things that held us back was the fact we didn't have the networks in place. Uh, we were far behind. Um, we did not have the necessary, the infrastructure in place, and we never had the skills in place. So we sort of stumbled along, and even today, we're still trying to compete uh, mm -hmm. within a space that, you know, if a, a little bit of foresight and making those investments, as was recommended in, to a lot of stage, would have positioned us totally different from a... Uh, a economic hub point of view and from a society point of view. You know, the same happened in from an Africa point of view. In that South Africa was seen to be the leader at that stage. And I remember there was many a time African countries were looking to South Africa for that uh, trans uh, the, the move into the technological age. Um, and I think, you know, to some extent, um, we, we did help certain countries, but to a lot of extent, I actually think some countries have just gone ahead of us. Mm -hmm. I think some of our regulation held us back. Um, you and I often talk, Barry, about, uh, and as example, mobile money in Kenya and why mm -hmm. that was successful as compared to South Africa, where even today it's almost impossible for mobile money to be expensive. And there were lessons learned from that, but I think also most African countries stopped looking for South Africa for the innovation, for the technology enablement. They're starting to build their own skills and they're working uh, with other countries rather than using South Africa as a base. So that's another one I think we just missed a big opportunity, yeah. not just for South Africa, but to help the rest of Africa. Yeah. I remember there was a narrative in the 90s around as apartheid ended, people were speaking of South Africa as the gateway to Africa. And they thought all the big multinationals and everyone that thought of working in Africa would set up their headquarters in South Africa and we would be the portal into the rest of Africa. And that hasn't happened. We've seen the growth of business hubs in Nairobi and Dubai, and we haven't really capitalized on the fact that we still are the major and most uh, developed economy in Africa, but we're still not the gateway to Africa. In your uh, period as Vice President for uh, Business Development in Mid-Eastern Africa, uh, you got to see a lot of the, the IT sector in the continent. You've spoken a bit about it, but what were um, um, some of the other strengths and weaknesses of Africa's digital economy? And how important is South Africa's role now in Africa? So, so I think the, the role of South Africa has declined. I don't think it's totally gone. Uh, but Barry, if you take Nigeria, right? So, you know, if you just look at from a population point of view, um, you know, Nigeria is about 200 million. We're about 57 million, etc. So they've got this huge mass of resources available. What people don't understand, so if you look at Nigeria, most of the Nigerian people who can afford it, and they've got a large middle-income sector, will send their, 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 their youngsters for schooling in the UK and in America, etc. Um, and so this uh, skill base starts to grow. And nowadays, those people are actually coming back, not to the extent that they've really made a big difference, but also what you saw is the ability to churn out uh, the type of educated youngsters in those countries. It's a scary thing if you if you sit back and you look at it, because if you take a country like like Egypt, right, and you look at why Egyptians tend to have dominant positions across a lot of the multinationals that operate both in the Middle East and in Africa, it's just because of the volume of MBAs and PhDs that they're able to churn out because of the way the schooling and the university model works there. So, you know, uh, education is, is affordable. It's almost free. Uh, 
once you you you've go to university, you have to go to the army for three years, but in exchange, you are able to get access to this education. So when these people start to move into the workplace, the volume of qualified engineers, PhDs, etc., you will find differs by country by country and is not proportioned to the population size. And I think in South Africa, we don't like to talk about it, but we trail we trail far behind. I think Nigeria, Kenya, even Senegal, these countries are stepping up. And if you just look at it from a scale point, from a capacity point of view, with our 57 million people and the rate at which our people, our, our youngsters have gone through the university, we've gone further and further behind as a lot of the African countries have gone further and further ahead and in the Middle East even more so around the rate at which these do. The other thing which is a, a, more, uh, a more difficult thing to talk about is that we, we, we are limited as South Africa by the fact that we are quite remote from where a lot of the potential opportunity exists and it's a long trip to travel to South Africa. The second thing was that the connectivity has always been expensive. So when people started to look like, you know, is South Africa a great hub to do anything? The connectivity starts to become prohibitive. It's getting better, but we're still far off. And if you look at countries like Dubai and you look at countries like Nigeria, the cost of productivity of the connectivity is starting to drop dramatically. The third area, uh, which is the one that uh, I get blushes when I have to talk about, is about crime. Right? It really is about crime. Um, you know that whether you like it or not, a lot of these decisions get made from where people want to go to and how safe they feel. So when you look at uh, Dubai and you look at a lot of the countries, Oman in the Middle East, if you look at the Philippines, um, you know, people will, I mean, organizations will locate large capabilities there because their they, they nationals feel safe to go there. And, you know, there's a lot of bad news that's always spread about South Africa. It was one of my pet hates living in other parts of the world. You'd see articles which are very far-fetched or something on TV about crime in South Africa. And that what we don't understand, that is the impression people have of South Africa. And so it's become a barrier. So the fact that connectivity is expensive, it is a long haul. Long haul. Um, the other thing, and I, you know, I'll be shot for saying this, but it's true. So BEs become a barrier, right? Because even for for non-nationals, what they quickly realize is that uh, it's going to be difficult for them because of the diversity to be able to easily find jobs in this country, and they'd rather go back home as quickly as possible. So we've got a lot of issues. We're still a great country, but we've got a lot of issues we've got to try and fix, right? Yeah. And in fact, a, a, um, a really interesting thing you were involved in uh, was chairing uh, the BAPESA board. So BAPESA is the business process outsourcing. And uh, you, you, you briefly mentioned it, but while you were at IBM, uh, you did some really great work in terms of uh, business process outsourcing and bringing work from Europe to South Africa. I recently heard how well the business processing outsourcing, the call center industry is doing in South Africa. And, uh, you know, they're big pluses, but could you speak a bit about call centers and business process outsourcing? Yeah, so, so, so Barry, you know, we went through an interesting period, right? Because there are some advantages when we think about South Africa. So if we had fixed connectivity and made it affordable, it would be even better. But despite that, right, what we do have are really good skills. And um, for those of you who understand the dynamic of multi-language, um, you, what you don't realize is that South Africa is very well positioned. So um, it's, a, it's a, a mental and a psychological thing. You can take a South African, put them in France or Italy, and within three months they speak the language almost fluently. It's because we speak multiple languages and we're easily able to adopt. So to adapt and adopt. So, so secondly, when we look at the call center industry, let's just stay on that one. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting game because people, there's, there's, there's four dynamics they look at. They look at 
where are the skills cheap, whether you like or not. This is not about highly paid. And South Africa was very competitive, and the problem is these things move. So Ireland was one of the first. Then there was countries like South Africa who had cheap skills, but then you start to compete with some of the Eastern European countries where they can get labor even cheaper, and then you find the Philippines has come up, and of course India was the big one where a lot of call centers moved to India. Um, we, we could compete against the Indians because at that point in time, from an understanding of our dialect, we were way ahead of the Indians, right? Now, the strange things about the call center environment is that people want to hear an accent that they're happy with. So, as an example, um, I built, it wasn't just a call center, it was a proper delivery center to support mainframes. And um, while I was at IBM, and actually we got very lucky because we were one of the few countries where because of the similarity of Afrikaans to Dutch, we could easily reskill a high volume of people in this country to speak Dutch. There's some, pro there's some difficulties, but the reality is we got a lot of South Africans and we created a large delivery center of Dutch-speaking South Africans who could service the Dutch without the Dutch knowing that actually someone in South Africa uh, was actually servicing their environment. What we then had was the government saw this opportunity specifically in the call center space. And they started to bring in these incentives. And it was, it was you know, you have to congratulate them because I can tell you many companies came to this country in order to create these contact centers offshore uh, because of the fact the incentives were there. If it was just the normal uh, way of doing it, I think they would have been far less. And that's always been successful, and the DTI has always been very good at sussing out what the right incentives are in order to train it. The good news is about that is that when you look at the, the population demographics, um, it's not necessarily for people with PhDs. So, so what you have was people who even just left high school Suddenly, there was a huge opportunity for employment. The labor wasn't expensive, and these people were, not, were, were, were quite smart. So you were able to quickly train these people up. And it happened across. It happened province by province. It was quite interesting those days because uh, the Western Cape had the lead. You know, everyone wants to go live in Kapstadt, right? So the, it, <laughs> it was very good in Western Cape, and then there was a Gauteng uh, initiative. And actually, the provinces used to compete, and then KZN uh, was able to compete. Some of it was linked to where, clearly linked to where they could find the right level of skills and the ability for them to learn languages. So you may not know this, but you can't do Dutch in KZN until they don't like to talk out ta the Taal, right? They don't like to speak Afrikaans. Mm -hmm. So, so, so there are these dynamics. Your escape town is very Afrikaans, so it was easier. And this industry built and built and is still highly successful. There were mm -hmm. other things we did at this at that point in time. As an example, there's a thing called LPO, Legal Process Outsourcing. And and you know it's quite interesting because uh, we worked with the DTI um, and we did the research. Uh, we had to use the embassy in London. And we wind and dine some of those legal companies, and we suddenly realized there was a huge opportunity to do legal back office out of South Africa. And that took off dramatically. So a lot of the big legal companies, what you will find, and they get good skills here, good technology, and our connectivity is getting better. So it's an opportunity that I think South Africa is playing in at the moment. It does move occasionally. What you'll find, the Indians have become now very good at... Uh, at the accents and getting the vocabulary uh, uh, correct, and you'll find Philippines will come up. So it, it shifts around the world. You know, Brazil became big as an outsourcer for, for the U.S. If we keep our labor costs low, low, if we have the infrastructure, if we have the networking, if we continue to develop people, it's still a spot, a sweet spot where we can be quite successful as a country. And that is really about creating employment. Exactly. Um, so I'm I'm wondering a little bit more about Kahiso uh, Media, which I knew you you entered into sort of after leaving IBM, and this was obviously like a really different part of the digital community that you had once been accustomed to. So can you tell us a little bit more about what digital transformation looked like then, and sort of how it's affecting the world of content and media? 
Yeah, so, so so maybe to start with, you know, I was hired into Kakiso Media because I was a, a CEO and not necessarily a digital guy, right? But uh, we, I got in there and watched. So the way the media industry works is quite interesting, right? Um, you have your traditional media, such as your print, uh, such as radio, and such as uh, television. And the way you got to look at this is a lot of the advertising spend was still going on to traditional media, okay? And, uh, and so when you looked at your business and you looked at your strategy going forward, you started to realize that more and more people were not looking at print anymore. I don't know if any of you still go and buy newspapers, but most people will go online uh, in order, in order to, to look at the news. Tied to that is this flip. So what you saw is the shift of advertising from the traditional media into the digital media. Now, it's not that easy, So, but I'll try and, and give you a picture of it. So the way the digital world operates is it's a thing called how much it's about audience, right? So in the radio space, they have uh, surveys that they do, and they tell you that this is how many consumers you can hit, right? In the uh, television space, it's very similar. They can track what the audience is and when the audience is available, and they, that's how they charge for the, for the advertising. In the digital space, uh, you should actually have more data around where the audiences are. The problem is that the audiences don't necessarily want to look at your adverts, right? So they can click out of your adverts. Uh, you have to attract them to your particular site first. So there's this thing called publishers, and they keep advertising space on their sites. And if you do that, and you do, and when we look at the numbers, you are able to extract it. But then you go further, and you look at uh, things like the movie industry, and you look at where Netflix is today, and you suddenly realize that you know the traditional uh, way at which not just advertising, but creating content, it's going to go more and more digital. Mm -hmm. And and even the movie houses, if you look at what they discover, and and it's and it's a, the media industry has gone through a discovery about what content works where. So Netflix quickly realized that typical producers of content like the movie houses, etc., was not necessary the type of content that attracted the audiences because the audiences are different depending on which markets you go to and and I haven't seen a lot written about that but but basically your markets change right so people who go to movie houses is probably less than 10% of your typical market suddenly you've got new markets and and what you'll find even in the lower income people that if you have the right channels to reach out to them. You also have to have the right content. You know, I remember at some stage there was um, a, uh, uh, a content that, was come, that came out of India and I sat and I was watching this in someone's home and I was like, how can they watch such low quality uh, content? Hmm. And then you realize that entire neighborhood, that's all they watched. You can put every any Hollywood movie in front of them. That was the thing that they were talking about every day. Uh, to the extent I decided to watch, I, I couldn't manage it for a couple of times just to understand why this, and it's because the people look like them, they talk like them, they behave like them, and so suddenly there was this link between communities and, and, and that particular con. And I think, don't think people have yet got it right. There's a thing called telenovelas uh, tele as an example. And telenovelas, uh, I don't know if you know where it comes from, it comes out of Brazil. And it's cheap, cheaply produced content, but you get the story right and the characters right, and suddenly telenovelas just took off globally, right? Uh, not just it was manufactured in Brazil, then translated, in, and this thing has got more and more advanced. So the whole media industry, uh, not just the the actual channels you use, not just about where advertising went, but the change in content, the change in delivery, and then the complexity, because if it's not just on advertising, because media companies have to think, can we make the money out of advertising? And that's why you will find today, nowadays, some of the publishers will try and make you pay or subscribe for content, and it's very difficult to make it work. People will go elsewhere, because there's so much content available that people are not even willing to pay for content that they 
want to read from a traditional environment. That is. So this is a, a thing called a freemium mo model about what you pay for and what you do and what you you don't pay for. And then you go to the the next level. So you know if you just think about it, Netflix at a hundred rand a month is going to be extremely difficult. So it's a volume game, and um, and and how do other channels compete with that? And you have to start differentiating around where that goes and it's going to get more complex because a lot of people will stay with uh, uh, paid for TV because they want to watch the Hollywood um, the Hollywood type of movies and and it's a difficult world to compete and to and to keep your customers hooked into your your uh, uh, channels uh, based on that so people are going to sh shift and as more and more of these platforms become available it's going to be more and more difficult for the traditional channels to do subscription based TV people there'll be pay-per-view and that includes sport so it will disrupt and it will continue to disrupt the entire industry and you know the nice thing about users they get smarter and smarter and they learn how to purchase what they want rather than what people are telling them to watch right yeah, and the, uh, the um, whole world of digital content and, and that connection between content and advertisers and how you monetize is such an important um, connection that people people don't realize how advertising works and how uh, money gets made through, through digital content. Could you just uh, talk a bit about how it, uh, because... Um, uh, working with many startups, they think, oh, well, we can make money by putting stuff on a web page and charging people to look at the web page, or um, um, charging advertisers to put adverts on the web page. And they don't realize how the world of advertising works. Could you just maybe talk, uh, um, talk a bit about how advertising works in, in the digital yeah. content space? Uh and and I think you put your finger yeah. on it, Barry. The, the the way you got to look at this, don't look at the media side, don't look at the advert, the advert, uh, the people wanting to say, look at where it starts. So so I'm going to use an analogy because it's probably the best way to do it, right? So you've got a smart marketing person sitting at clicks. Uh, sorry, that was being facetious. Um, <laughs> who who has given a task? We want to run a campaign. Uh, we want to reach, to just to give you an idea of the discussion, we want to reach 400,000 uh, people. Um, and then they start, with the digital world, they start telling you what those people should look like. So they will say they've got to be females, the bulk of it, 80%, uh, between the ages of 32 and 40, because that's when they have children. A and so this division about, okay, so this is what we're looking for. Then they go back, they sit back, and they say, now where are we going to find this audience that this campaign and this product is suited to, right? First, they, lo they look at the traditional channels, and normally they divide the money. They say, like, you know, here's a little bit of money. We're going to do television because we know television works okay. Then they're going to take a little bit of money and they may say, okay, we're going to give you some of it to rate it looks okay. And then they say, now we've got to do digital. Now, the way the digital world works, the publishers owns the advertising space. Now, already this thing has already been automated, right? So, so what you've what you got to think about, who are the big publishers in South Africa? So let's say this is a South African campaign. So the, num the names that will come up to you is play things like News24, uh, IOL, uh, etc., because they have the audiences. So the the digital world is such; it's all about the data. Where do these audiences sit? Now, if you're targeting the lower LSM, maybe that's not where you're going to go. They may have a different set of publishers who have the type of audience you want, right? Then there's a whole science around uh, where do you want to place these adverts and how much you pay for these adverts. Does that make sense? So you're now saying, okay, it's, we want to reach 200,000 digital. We're going to, and, and then there's these aggregators who go out and they solicit, and there's an a auctioning platform that you can reach a lot of publishers. You don't necessarily have to pick one particular. You go to the auction and you say, I want to reach these audiences. This is the type of price. 
can you find me advertising space on their website and then they go ahead right so the way that works then is that this uh, auction happens and it happens in real time you don't see it but as you get an advert on a website that you're on there's actually an auction at the back end of it okay yeah uh, that has immediately occurred that says okay you can have this at 10 cents up a banner and up pops the click advert and the EFF decides to burn your bowling stuff <laughs> so 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 it may you may not even know that someone's gonna advertise on your site because there's a thing called programmatic and uh, and more and more however people are starting to get more so we've had interesting things in the space where an ISIS thing appears right to one of the big American companies and all hell gets loose this uh, clicks thing is a comment although I don't think that was necessary through programmatic but it shows the complexity of even where you place mm. adverts and you sometimes don't know which websites you're gonna place it on right so but the big thing is always about what is the numbers what is the number yeah of views that have come to my website and how much advertising can I sell and is it the right audience that people want to advertise on my website sure. and it's so, it, it, uh, uh, yeah, Karen sorry, yeah you carry on um, so one thing that I guess has become a lot more fascinating given the, the you know the pandemic is uh, is, is education right um which i guess has just been a, a catalyst or or just emphasize the the sort of digital divide um between those who have access to education and those who don't um so obviously now school kids and university students are having to do like remote learning and all sorts of things and there are those who can do it with quite a bit of ease and then those obviously who lack connectivity how do you think this can be addressed yeah, so, 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 you know, the first of all, government's got a responsibility, right? So, you know, if we look at, unfortunately, where the, the MNOs are, the, 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 the uh, network operators in this country, um, they have made investments, and there are, is a level of pricing that uh, it makes it unaffordable to the average person. So the access to connectivity is I don't think can easily be fixed unless government takes a massive step and they are starting to do that right so we've seen huge rollout of fiber in many different provinces the problem is you can roll out the fiber the expensive part is also tackling the last mile and how you create connectivity to the last mile technology is changing very very quickly very very quickly so so what you will find is like unlike before where you know m m uh, microwave etc was expensive it's getting cheaper and it's getting to the capacity where you can start to exploit it and start to use it and this thing is evolving but at the moment it's like pouring water into a hole right you actually don't know when that hole is actually going to fill up because of such a huge demand for bandwidth now, if you speak to some of the lower LSMs, I'll be quite frank with you, and you say to them, you know what, we can give you ba uh, bandwidth, but it's going to, you know, it's going to cost you whatever the, the MVNOs come up with. 800 man rand a month, which should be enough. They're not going to give you 800 man rand a month, right? So many of these guys would look at, you know, a maximum of uh, probably less than 100 rand, both for voice and for, for data. And yet that's the people part of society that probably we can use connectivity the, uh, the most to uplift them specifically in the education space okay so when you think of that in mind and you then say okay so how do you create connectivity for everyone so you don't leave anyone behind and unfortunately you have this divide the people who have it there's a lot of technology that will really change the way students learn but they need connectivity and they need expensive access devices. Then you look down the low end and you say, so these people can't afford it. How quickly can we as society and government roll out connectivity to people who can't afford to pay the price that the middle class and the upper class pay? And that's where the challenge starts from. Mm -hmm. So government's doing things. They're putting it in schools. They're putting it in libraries. I have an interesting story right? uh, as an example. Now during COVID, that you know, government came to us and said you have to shut this library down, and this library was in a uh, a certain neighbourhood, and there was a risk of COVID spreading, 
because the people knew that if they were close to the library, they had free Wi-Fi. So you had this crowd gathering around this library, which had a fence around it, by the way, uh, so that they could get access to that. And the risk of spreading COVID, because that's how people who need Wi-Fi will start to realize. Now, that was not even for schooling. It was probably for, for other reasons. Now you take uh, the challenge we as society have. Where you've got kids, and we've created a, a system where, you know, we try and keep the kids at schools where there's not such a big difference between the private schools and the public schools. The difference is already there. And then you start to see this change where through this COVID period that schools realize they have to start moving. You know, suddenly video conferencing is becoming important. The ability to distribute work plans for kids, even though they don't have anything else, at least get the work plans to the teachers. Now, at one school, someone said to me, which I found very interesting, said, you know what, at least they were sending us work plans uh, because it's in a school where we have different types of kids. But the reality that happened was that the, uh, the parents, some parents went and said, you're going to stop this. And they said, what? They said, we don't have internet at home, so we have to come in to fetch our work plans, physically come in. Why should you send it out electronically to the other? <clears throat> and that is just the sadness of, of capturing this gap, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's just work plans. That's got nothing to do with video conferencing and online learning. And, and I'm intrigued, right? So then I said, you know, here's some rich kid who I know, and I start asking him the questions. And you suddenly see that the world's changing, right? They're doing full online learning, the lessons, are, and there's lots more that can be done. We're not yet there. And then I said, so it's working? And he says, yeah, except for the old teachers, they don't know what they're doing, right? So it's yeah. also generational issues. So I was so convinced that the generational issue was bypassed, but it's not. It's there. Because, I mean, you know, I look at myself today to get onto this, the ability to set it up because it was something new, and you can imagine some older folks uh, really struggling with that, right? So then you say, okay, so so we have this challenge and we've got to educate these kids. We're just going to have to get better at better at the exploitation of technology and making sure that government and society invest in making sure you can get connectivity. The technology is there. We can make it cheaper and affordable. But as an example, if you look at Wi-Fi projects, they fail. They fail because there's a willingness to do it. And as I said, it's like pouring water down a, uh, a hole. You actually don't know how much water you're going to re require to ever fill that up. But it's something that society is going to have to get done. Otherwise, you're going to get this huge gap that started to, we used to talk about the digital divide. It will get even bigger unless we can address the change in education through the use of uh, digital and connectivity. Yeah, and that, and we've spoken about this in in some other places, but uh, you know, we we did a miracle in the 1990s in terms of connecting people to the power grid, and we have to do another miracle in terms of giving everyone affordable and and good connectivity. Uh, we are reaching the end of our talk, and there's still so much I want to ask you, so we're definitely going to have to do this again. But um, in the spirit of handing over the baton, if you were advising Karen and those of her generations on how to position themselves to be leaders of Africa's digital future, can you um, give a few words of advice to that generation in terms of what they should do? So, so, so Barry, a couple of things, right? I mean, if you, if you look today at youngsters, so... Youngsters, first of all, are trying to work out what this digital thing is. It's not about Netflix. That's not what the way they should think about it. Um, what there's two things they should think about. Very simple, and I'm simplifying this. It's far more complex. Can I find a job because I have the, I'm a digital competent? Or can I create a business because I'm a digital competent? Now, mm -hmm. two is going to become even more important than one, right? Um, as the way that because of automation, uh, and all the other things that jobs will become more and more difficult to achieve. The other thing that you need to think about is I have to develop specialist skills that if I either get employment or my specialist skills is going to help me to create a business that's going to be useful for people into the future. So, 
so 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 you've got to think about that and say uh you know a lawyer great you know lawyer it's specialized <clears throat> and you can probably become a lawyer going forward in this digital world you may have to become a digital lawyer okay mm -hmm. now what do i mean by that you know i just i told you a couple of weeks ago i went to a supreme court hearing and the entire thing was done digitally and uh and uh the reality was i was blown out of my mind i was so impressed with the smoothness which they did it of how these judges have adopted to video conferencing etc and yet there's still a lot of change because they're still referring to physical books etc and uh, the reality is that a lot of those things should be all online the book should be online the the heads uh, should be online the transcribe should be online and so technology will continue to change that profession so my advice think about what the world's going to look like into the future decide uh, if you can that you're going to go into your own business and then look at where the opportunity is in this digital world to run your own business yes there's going to be physical things like uh, a plumbing business or electrical business but a lot of the business will be digital and do not get left behind if i gave them advice look at the changes that's happening globally and where people are able to operate companies and then from a jobs point of view make sure you are highly digital competent because all jobs digital will be at the heart at what they're going to do yeah and I think that's good advice. What do you think, Karen? Is that no, good you. advice I'm for you? Definitely, yeah. Don't get left behind. And it just—it's so easy. Like you, you blink, and <laughs> the number of technological advances that have been made are just like incredible. And you're like, whoa, hang on. I was just—I was just trying to get like my head around this one thing. So I totally feel that. Yeah. So I think that's a good note, good positive note to leave this on. Um, I think that the baton is a scary one for the young generation to pick up, but it's also a very exciting one. So um, thank you so much, Mark, for your time on this. Yeah, thank you. And no, it was nice uh, we'll speak again. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Barry. Thanks, Karen. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowitz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowitz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.